The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome a fellow registered dietitian, Mr. Dave Seddon. He is in business management, and he's got 25 years' experience constructing and developing for-profit and non-profit organizations in the areas of finance, operations, nutrition services, consumer marketing and education, and local food sourcing. Mr. Seddon received a B.S. degree from the University of Vermont with a concentration in dietetics and small business management. He completed a dietetic graduate course and an internship at Boston University, and he holds an MBA from Colorado State University. He also happens to be the current president of the Maine Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. But the real reason why I wanted to talk to him today is because he serves as the board president and CEO of the Maine Farm and Sea Cooperative, which is the nation's first farm and sea to institution food service management company. So building upon his years in the Vermont dairy industry, commercial fishing in Alaska, and working with fledgling farmers and retail production facilities in numerous states, Dave continues to look for best practices to integrate local, sustainable agricultural and seafood products as a means to solve the perplexing hunger and obesity paradox. Dave, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So I think that we need to have a discussion first and foremost about how did you get to where you are today? It's not usual that we find men who are in the dietetic profession, for one, but the fact that you've found this unique niche within the food system. Yes, uh, you are absolutely correct. And uh, most of my colleagues are women. And I have to say I pale in comparison to most of them out there when it comes to uh, knowledge base and dissemination. But I do my best and I, I really enjoy the profession. Started many years ago working in the dairy industry when I was in Vermont going to school. And the love for food just sort of hit home, and I was going to find myself pursuing that path through the course of my career, whether it was in management, whether it was in education, whether it was in consumer marketing. So that's always been a mainstay, but the real love really came involving the sustainability aspects of our food sources and how to actually get local food back into the consumers and the institutions that are actually providing that. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to the website, and for our listeners, it's www.mainfarmandsea.coop. And on that website, there's a wonderful video that describes, through farmers' voices mostly, and fisher people, talking about the importance of relocalizing our food system, and especially in a cooperative way. So what is it about a cooperative that makes it different from other business structures? That's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, we are a business. However, the structure and how we are the business, the way we create our vision, 
is built upon by the members themselves. And we're very fortunate for this newfound structure in that we have consumers, we have workers, and we have producer-owned members. So those folks that are involved with the actual institution development of this cooperative not only benefit from potentially getting some patronage back in the form of some net profits, however, they become instrumental in sourcing and going through the steps to make sure that we can go ahead and use the local food in our surrounding areas by the particular people that are part of the cooperative and actually put those back into the areas in which other consumers will actually get it. Well, another factor in the film that really struck me Mm -hmm. was the fact that only 14% of food consumed in Maine is produced in Maine. And piggybacking on that concept, 92% of all the seafood is imported into this country. So we are relying on other countries, other states as well, to provide our food. And that does not make sense from a sustainability standpoint. No, it doesn't at all. And it's interesting uh, you point out the 92%. That's within a 10-year span when they first came out and were telling us about that percentage, that there has been that incredible increase in imports. And we have seen such a large influx of new businesses growing just in Maine itself, the food Specifically in the seafood market, we've had various types of agriculture production going on that is just amazing. And adding to that, you would think that we'd be using more of that. But what's happening is that most of that is actually getting transported out of the country. And specifically when I'm talking about Maine, we're actually moving a lot of that outside of the Maine area as well. Hmm. How did that shift happen and why? Yeah, that's a great question. I think... Part of the reason comes to the fact of dollars and cents, as well as what people feel is important. And the importance of local food, I think, has lost its ring. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell people that there is some real benefits for not only eating local from a nutritional quality standpoint, but also there's some economic benefits. So, for instance, there is a, a good factor that's used a lot of times, and this is used by the Small Business Development Group, they use a 1.8% factor on economic impact. And when you go ahead and you look at the dollars that are actually being produced in the state, trying to apply that factor, you see that if you kept it within the state, you get an an immense amount of financial reimbursement back to the state. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a lot of other aspects of sustainability that are out there that we need to be taking uh, care of, but These are the key points that we need to really keep on track with. Yeah, and I don't know if there's any way to measure the value beyond the dollar of connecting with community. I mean, I think we both probably would understand how good it feels to shop at a local market. There's a different level of communication. You run into people that you wouldn't ordinarily see. Perhaps you even work on solving community problems, even though that might not have been on your agenda that morning. (laughs) But I I don't know how to capture that value. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we are a triple bottom line business, and I think that term gets thrown around so much, and there's so many different ways to analyze that and try to figure out 
what that actually means in impact. Most people will take those three items, and if for those who are not quite familiar with that, those are usually the people, planet, profits. That's one way of looking at it. Others will look at it at environmental, social, and economic measures. Uh, so these are different ways that we are actually trying to find our baseline and find that impact across the board. We're not trying to just put dollars to every single one of those factors. And you bring up a great point. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things that we can do in increasing the notability of what we're actually trying to produce out there. And the three things that I was just pointing out, people, planets, and profits, we are looking at other things. The unemployment rate, we're trying to get new jobs created for every single dollar that we keep locally, is there an impact to the number of people that actually that would affect? How many new distribution points can we create? What is the carbon footprint of actually keeping more local food in the area? So those are just some good examples. Do you think that the cooperative model of business better feeds that triple bottom line or better addresses each of those three components? It does. It does. And and the way it does that is that it, it actually goes out and talks with and coordinates efforts with members in our society that are actually doing the production, that are doing the work in order to be part of the cooperative as well as being part of that local solution. So we're talking about the farmers. We're talking about the folks going out to sea. We're talking about the production facilities. We're also talking about the distribution points. So these are the people that we're trying to work with in order to then feed into the institution side where we find the biggest impact to that side is going to be on menu developments as well as sourcing for their various consumers within their markets. And I just naturally or instinctively think that cooperatives mm-hmm. by their nature and by their structure are not exploitive. They're not. I mean, uh, certainly there have been plenty of other cooperatives in the past that have done such great success, and uh, these are sort of role models for us. I Mm -hmm. mean, Cabot Cheese, Organic Valley, Ocean Spray. So, again, the concept is not unique. We've been working a lot in developing our work with the uh, Cooperative Development Institute, which is located right in Massachusetts, and uh, one of the founding visionaries of our team is actually Jonah Furtick, which is fantastic because... He helps us understand and really look at the the bottom line of what we're trying to do and how to accomplish that with a very communal sense about it. So no one person, no group is actually taking too much of that weight on and making too much of their own initiatives in that. So the board structure, which is a great example, involves a core group of members but also includes various folks from the various membership types, such as the consumer, the worker, and the producer groups, and they get to elect various members to the board to help to guide and to massage that vision that we have and uh, obviously the operations that will ensue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that what you're doing really is a national model. Have you seen other states try to copy what you're doing? This is the first time we've seen actually cooperatives trying to go, especially from the farm, sea to the institution. Yes. But also, yes, 
Also, the fact that we have three different membership types built into our cooperatives. And most of the other cooperatives that I've mentioned, they're usually either consumer-driven or they're producer-driven or they're worker-driven. We're trying to combine all three of them into one big pot. So we find that <laughs> that big supply chain that we keep talking about, it doesn't just start at one place. And when we try to talk about how to go about creating solutions for the barriers to get that local food into the systems, the best way we found was to actually talk to every single entity that is hitting those various distribution points to the production side to the consumption side. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted to talk about barriers and solutions to barriers, but I also want to talk about how you've reached into the University of Maine system because you are having this farm and sea to institution cooperative. Tell me a little bit about some of the barriers that you overcame in working with the University of Maine. That's a really great question. I mean, first of all, we are a fledgling company. I mean, there is no doubt about it. We knew that as we went into this project and bidding process. But we have the management structure, we have the financial resources, and we have the experience, and we also have the ability to pull in and do the various tasks that the university is asking us. And their initial request to the bidders was to produce 15% local food in the first year and reach 20% by year 2020. Our actual model says, you know what, we can go in and we can do that 20% first year. And case in history tells us that one of our actual, our, our COO today, he's done that in the Portland public school systems. He's brought that school up to 35%, kept a reasonable plate cost. And other examples are, let's say, St. Joseph College, which is uh, not that far from us. They're up to 40, 40 plus percent today and still doing a great job in maintaining costs. So there's plenty of models out there that can show that it can be done. But all of these models include one of the primary things that we kept trying to elicit in our uh, conversations was that menu planning, a little bit of pre-planning, discussions with your local producers well before you need it is going to be the mainstay of making this a successful operation. Mm-hmm. And speaking of colleges, yes. I think that food and good food, local food, is mm. a fabulous recruitment tool. So. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> and that, that's a great question to bring up because what is one of the barriers that we're seeing for the university today has been the steady decline of students. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been seeing a, a 2% decline in the last five years per year of students and obviously, you know, we, we're never going to tell anybody that just because you have good food is going to make your numbers go up. However, when you have bad food, yeah, then you're talking about a negative impact. So if we can at least keep neutral because we have great food and doing local, I think that's a great thing to help them potentially remarket and do some more things to entice those students into the environment. Absolutely. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned in to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Mr. David Seddon. He is a fellow registered dietitian, but he has a unique role in that he is the board president and CEO of the Maine Farm and Sea Cooperative, the nation's first 
Farm and Sea to Institution Food Service Management Company. Okay, well, we have to talk about seafood because, you know, <laughs> that's where you are. Yes. And there's so much to know about our fish and our seafood. And the fact that the video, as we mentioned earlier, mentioned that we're importing so much of it and that is not good for food security or taste and flavor what do you want our listeners to know about what you've learned about seafood in your years with the cooperative? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I got to tell you, I am learning so much every day. And the reason why I, I say I'm learning everything, new things every day is that there's so many new things happening in legislation. There's new things happening in the types of equipment that the fisher folks are using these days, aquaculture is a huge part of our offshore farming industry, and there are just some great techniques that are out there. So what I love to say about our seafood in Maine is that it is some of the best in the world. Our people in Maine, and I'd have to send you to all the spokespersons for the Lobster Association, for the Groundfish Association, the Aquaculture Association, but I can tell you honestly from my point of view, and I know from members that are part of our team, we think Maine has some of the best seafood in the world, and we have really great ties to the universities that are a part of that system as well because they're helping to make it a better, sustainable, higher quality product, making sure that we're going to have seafood years to come. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the biggest threats to the seafood industry? What have the fishermen and women told you were the biggest threats to them? Yeah, the, the biggest threats I think for them right now is trying to distribute their product and get a good price for that. Consistency in pricing is really tough because we're not talking that every single one of them have large ability to bring in catches and stuff. So the Portland Fish Exchange has certainly lost volume uh, partly because of pricing wars uh, that because other countries are able to bring in cheaper products, but also the fact that there's been a lot of regulation on the ground fishing industry and other industries. Uh, but the key thing is that I think there's a lot of people working together to make that solution happen, and that's a great thing because hopefully solutions such as with the Atlantic Cod, which is right now just terribly, terribly depleted and you only get it a handful of time a year, th these are the things that we want to see back into the mainstream. And mm -hmm. Again, there's, there's so many different varieties of uh, fishing techniques out there that it's <laughs> we can have hours talking about that. Right. Well, where can we go, do you think? What are some of your best resources? I mm. love that you're a dietitian yes. because we do consumer education. That's our nature. So a consumer comes to you wanting to know more about buying sustainable fish. Where do you send them? Well, there's some great resources that throughout the state, which include – University of Maine extension programs because they're heavily involved in working with sustainable measures as well as best practices for the fisher folks, mm -hmm. including business practices. There's other companies that are also cropped up in foundations, such as CEI, which actually is a, a lending source, but they have an arm that actually does research. One of the things they did a couple years ago was they did a seafood study, and in that study they were able to help identify and bring together the information telling people what's seasonal, what are some of the fish that we should maybe concentrate more on, and what should we actually be using in order to 
maybe use it going forward to help the sustainability of other species. Yeah. Gulf of Maine Research Institute, without question, is probably one of the leading resource of uh, making sure that the Gulf of Maine itself is a very viable source for years to come. And I think the last place, you got to talk to a lot of the retailers and the fishermen if you can get a chance to, because a lot of the retailers today, they have a lot of knowledge, and they're getting more and more because they know they need to have that information in order to make themselves more marketable, but also to make sure that they're going to have products for years to come. Right. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the imported fish and this whole idea of the pricing and that it's cheaper if Mm -hmm. it's imported, which seems crazy to me, but I don't understand these things. But it leads me to the question of country of origin labeling or COOL and how some of our trade policies are going to be affecting that, like the TPP that we've been reading so much about. What are your thoughts about COOL or country of origin labeling and Again, what are the action steps that we can take to make sure that consumers have that level of information when they're in the marketplace? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question. Sort of, and I'll tell you, it is a little scary that we're trying to move away from things as such as that. Cool is definitely needed. However, specifically in the fishing industry, there is a lot of pressure to do some more traceability studies, a lot more research and practice going into place for individual companies to identify exactly where their product is coming from and getting that from point A, which is actually the producer, up through to the consumer. So GMRI, I'm going to tell you one more time, which is so the Gulf of Maine Research Institute really is one system out there. It tells you, and there's a program that's out there, where the uh, retailer will produce traceability information uh, right at the storefront for people so they know where it's coming from. There's other companies like Red's Best that actually is based out of Massachusetts, but their software actually helps from dock to distribution to the consumer by producing traceability information at a fingertips necessity. And these are the things that actually are the things that Cool should be actually representing. And when we're talking about importing fishes specifically and other seafood products, we need to know where those are coming from because the biggest reason why we should have that is not just to tell us it's from Norwegian areas or other areas. It's to tell us where the waters are going to be used from, where are those products coming from, because those waters are the ones that are actually containing potentially the elements that are actually causing other issues for that product that are making it a little bit unhealthy. Yeah, you mean some toxins. I'm talking specifically about toxins, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know, I don't know about you, but I've looked at the U.S. Geological Survey data on water quality, and the fish contamination is alarming. And I think that that all connects with energy and the whole sustainability picture. So let me know what challenges your particular region are facing with regard to toxins. I'm sure they're different in all areas of the country, but I don't think there's a Department of Health out there that doesn't have a mercury warning. Uh, No, absolutely. There definitely is that out. And I just wanted to also mention that the cool language in the actual statute does actually exempt food service establishments from labeling, which is interesting because that would mean that theoretically we wouldn't need to actually post that information. Obviously, that is a very big thing for us, and we want to make sure that 
items, if we can trace it, we're going to tell people about it. So just wanted to mention that. Okay. Um, uh, my mouth is hanging open. You just can't see it. Institutions don't have to inform their consumers? They do not need to label. That is correct. So, they, are exempt. they are exempt as defined by, and I think I actually have that for you, 60.107 is telling you about them, and that is under 60.200, country of origin notification. Wow. That's... Obviously, that is something that is uh, pretty interesting in itself, but something that we are always making sure, and this is something that we had mentioned in our proposal, is that we're going to make sure that everything we do and where we can certainly make better efforts to make sure that the traceability of that product. And when we're talking Maine, that makes it real easy. However, we want to be able to show that as well. Yeah. Well, you know, Dave, you have worked in so many different areas. You've worked with Vermont Dairy. You've worked with commercial fishing in Alaska. You've been in Colorado. Her listeners might be interested to know that you in, part of your work experience included managing operations at Denver's Mile High Stadium. But you're back in Maine. And I want to know, what is it that you've learned from all these different places that you've worked with regard to the food system? Are there some common denominators? There are. The food is not going to get better by any one person, any single entity out there. There's a collaborative effort that needs to happen. A cooperative model is a great way to do that, and I've been so fortunate to have the group of people around me. I mean, I again, I point out that we've had local sustainability directors from corporations to other colleges. I've had folks that have been working on cooperative models that are making sure that employees are taken care of. I mean, that was another big thing. We want to make sure that people we have on our staff or that are part of the production cycle are going to be taken care of. And those are the really important things and part of the foundations of what makes that so important. So that's what I have to say in taking away from the various things that I've done, be able to take that information, use it, and to be able to disseminate that back out. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful model, and in terms of people being well-informed, well-fed, well-paid, to me mm. it seems that having that local cooperative is really a gem. And it is you know, not only the first, but it seems to me like it would be a great national model. If you could change some things in the food system, being a dietitian, and you've got the health background and the business background, what would you change if you had the opportunity to do so? you could change some policies right off the bat? Well, certainly the policies that I think I'm going to uh, just advocate for right now are food waste. And food waste happens in a lot of different ways because obviously there's a lot of areas we can address food insecurity, but food waste has been a big topic as of late. And these are the things that I'm really glad to see that we have statewide organizations and some national support from our legislators that are dealing with that. So if anything, from a dietitian point of view, I think that if we can address that and we can do that, I think there's a lot of things that can be a, the solution within a local means, and we just need to find those and exhaust those avenues in order to make sure that we can curb that issue. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Dave, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. We have been speaking with Mr. Dave Seddon. He's a fellow registered dietitian, and he serves as the board president and CEO of the Maine Farm and Sea Cooperative, the nation's first farm and sea to institution food service management company. In closing, I want to thank you, Mr. Seddon, for being with me, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOBN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. Thank you very much.